Here's the backstory on this shirt. It is a fun story. How many of you recognize it? How many? All right, a lot of you do. This is, this is fun. So there's this kid in Florida. And at their kid's school, they had this um, college colors day, they called it. So this kid, his favorite school is the University of Tennessee. Their color is orange, orange and white. And so he was like, I don't have a University of Tennessee shirt. How about I make one? So here's a picture. It was floating all over the internet. This kid, he, he went and he was resourceful and he took a piece of paper and he drew his own University of Tennessee logo. He put it on his orange shirt and he went to school. And the teacher, the teacher said he was so excited that he was able to have a shirt that could represent his school, that he could fanboy his volunteers and all that. But what do you think happened when he got out of the safety of the classroom, he went to lunch, and the mean girls sat at the table next to him? How do you think that went? Not so good. And the kid comes back to class, and he's just devastated. He felt ashamed. He felt mocked. He felt all those things that you could anticipate. And so this teacher, this teacher, rather than just say, oh, that's too bad for you. And a lot of you, you're teachers and you know, right? You know, you feel for these kids. And she's like, well, what can I do? She said, the least I can do is to get a shirt and maybe even see if there's somebody that can help me out get a little bit more. Well, those of you who have been following the story, you know that this thing just blew up. As soon as the University of Tennessee heard about this, they rallied around it and they ended up getting this massive swag bag all together with gear, shirts, hats, all this stuff. They send it to the school and this kid gets to open this up and, and, and see all this stuff. They even threw in a scholarship for this kid. They even threw it. I know. I know, I'm just like, someone be mean to me on purpose so I can like get my kids through college, you know. It was just unbelievable. It, this, this shirt, the, re, the reason I'm wearing this shirt is the University of Tennessee took this design, they turned it into this shirt. And this shirt ended up crashing their online store because so many people were like, oh, I got to get one of those, especially if I'm a pastor and I got to get it in time for the message that's coming up like next week, right? So it crashed their online shop. This is such a great story. And we're talking about work today. And so often we think of work as only what the University of Tennessee did, and that was they seized an opportunity, right? And all the people on that whole chain, man, they did some good strategic work that, that, that helped their, their organization. So good work, University of Tennessee. But, 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 but beyond work, what the teacher did went beyond her job description. That was good work, wasn't it? And when you trace it back to the kid, that was good work. Coming up with an idea that ended up capturing the heart of a nation and getting him a scholarship, right? Good work, kid. Good work, teacher. Good work, University of Tennessee. Here's the thing about good work, and there's a place to write this in your notes. Good work has intrinsic value. Good work is just valuable, period. Good work is good. We did a series on work back in 2014, and I included a link to that series in the bottom of your notes. I'll put that in the ECC mail this week. And one of the books that we, we looked at, myself and intern Nick, some of you remember intern Nick, one of the books that we looked at in preparation for this series was a book called Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. Excellent book. Excellent book. We put that information in your notes as well. Keller does an outstanding job of taking us back to the beginning with work, back to the book of Genesis. And we see that in the beginning was work. And it was good. 
In the beginning was work, and it was good. The book of Genesis describes God's creation of the world as work. It's presented as work. And the way that work is presented in Genesis, it's very different than the other origin stories for how we came about. The other origin stories that were circulating about in the ancient world. So many of those origin stories about how we got here, we got here as a result of cosmic conflict. These divine beings went to war and they were getting, not getting along and all this messy stuff happened and the messy stuff became our messy world. That's how we got here. Genesis has a very different story. The story of a creator God who crafted this, crafted this. And in the middle of it, he put his ultimate creation, that's us. And he said, now you go do as I did. Bring order from chaos, bring beauty where there's none. Bring life where there isn't. Go and do what I did. That's our origin story that we find in Genesis Keller says it like this. He said, repeatedly, the first chapters of the book of Genesis describe God at work using a Hebrew word for ordinary human work. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have had, I love this phrase, work could not have had a more exalted inauguration. Wasn't that good? That's how work was presented. When we do good work, we reflect the image of God, the God who in the beginning brought forth light from darkness, beauty and order from chaos and life where there had been no life. And the highlight of his creation were people, people who were commissioned to go and do as he had done, bring forth light and beauty and order and life. In our world, this world as God's designed it, work matters. Work matters. And all we got to do to prove that is just say, what would happen if we all stopped working? What would happen tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day? Food would vanish from the shelves. Gas would dry up at the pumps. Homes would grow dark. Phones and computers would be rendered useless. There'd be no police or firefighters to call. No hospitals to go to if we got sick. One of the sources I looked at this week said the difference between the wilderness and culture is work. It's work. came across this quote a few weeks ago about a guy whose mind was getting expanded in terms of just work being something good. He says, I'm not sure where I got the idea from, but a substantial amount of the stress that I was experiencing in my life was a result of thinking that leisure and retirement were the ultimate goals of a happy life. Maybe it was the escalator mentality of an entitled younger generation, always convinced there's a shortcut or an easier way. Whatever it was, though, that gave me the idea that a permanent leisure is the ultimate goal, it was incredibly wrong. Work is a fundamental part of life, a source of deep satisfaction. We were created to work. Work produces happiness and great rewards that fill our lives with joy. And look what he says here. Work is one of the most honoring forms of what? Worship that we have. There is so much that is so good about work. And so important about work. And something within us longs to not just do good work, but to be recognized for it and validated for it. But even as I'm saying that, we can all know this. We all experience this. There's a big gap between work as we've described it and work as we experience it, isn't there? Big gap. Big gap. 
Work as it was meant to be and work as we experience it. Work can be frustrating. Work can feel empty of meaning and purpose. Work can take on the role of an idol in our lives. And workers can be exploited, exploited for selfish gain. We can do good work only to have it unrecognized or for others to take the credit for it. And all the hard work can be undone by those who come after us. One of the reasons we love the book of Ecclesiastes, so many of us, is because it presses into and confronts head-on realities like we just described. Ecclesiastes is real, it is raw, it is unflinchingly honest. The teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes affirms the importance of work. Here's an example of that, Ecclesiastes 10.8. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. Does the teacher in Ecclesiastes affirm work? Yes. And, and, the teacher in Ecclesiastes would say, Yep, go ahead and fix those rafters because it's better to have fixed rafters and have them leaking. And your neighbor might have a really sharp saw cut down the tree next to you and it can fall in your house and smash your house and it doesn't matter anyway. That's the reality that we find in Ecclesiastes, which leads the teacher to this conclusion. This is how the teacher in Ecclesiastes opens and closes his rant. He opens it and closes it the same way. He says, Hevel, Hevel, Everything is hevel. Hevel is a Hebrew word. It means vapor, or it means breath, or it means smoke. The word appears about 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. I, uh, this week, I saw the, the ending um, of Avengers Endgame again, and I was thinking about hevel, and I'm like, that's it, isn't it? You know, even if you are as powerful as Thanos was, the teacher would say, even if you have almost unlimited power and almost unlimited resources, even if the odds are 14 million to one that you're going to come out on top, what can happen in the end? It can all just turn to dust. It can all just slip away. If time or chance can affect it, it's heavy. We live in a world. We live in a world where mean girls, like the ones who tease the boy at lunch, they can end up becoming the homecoming queens. And the kid who designed this shirt could end up failing his way out of school and wasting the scholarship. But even if the story ends the way we think it should, the sun will rise, the sun will set every day. And this shirt and all of the meaning around it, and this message that I'm giving, and pretty much everything that any of us do, it's going to turn to dust. And people are going to forget it. So is all this in vain? Is all this in vain? That's what Ecclesiastes gets us to consider and confront. Last week, we read the teacher set out to test life, to test it. And one of his tests involved work. This is something we looked at last week, Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 6. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. How did that work out for him? You know, did he find satisfaction there? Did he find the recognition that his soul longed for? Well, let's take a look. Here's the new content we're going to go into today. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 
verses 18 through 23. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's open up to Ecclesiastes 2.18. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. Each and every week we keep a stack there on the table. We'd love for you to take one as a gift to you. All right, here we go. Ecclesiastes 2.18 and 19. We'll start there. (laughs) How did it work out for him? Oh, I hated all my toil, he says. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he's going to be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. Hevel. This is hevel. The teacher reflects on all his hard work and he asks a question. And that question is, is the person who come after me, comes after me, is he going to be wise or is he going to be a fool? I invested all this time. I invested all this energy. Will my successor build on what's been built and take it to the next level? Or is this going to be like Tommy Boy, only with an unhappy ending? Take Tommy Boy, take out the happy ending. Am I going to get stuck with that as my legacy? So that's one of the problems, okay? So then continuing on, verses 20 to 21. So I turned about, he says, I turned about, and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Not only, not only must we turn over that which we've worked so hard to build to someone who might undo what's been done, it's also possible that we're going to turn it over to somebody and they didn't work for it. So here we did all the heavy lifting and they reaped the rewards. And the teacher says, that's hevel. That's hevel. Verses 22 through 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart from which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. I had to look that one up. Vexation, that's a great word. It means a state of annoyment. How many of you, the show of hands, have ever experienced work as a state of annoyment? (laughs) Yes, right? Work can be that. It can be a state of annoyment. And then look at this. Even in the night, even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. In this fallen world, work can be annoying. It can be frustrating. It can feel absolutely pointless. And that phrase where he says, the heart does not rest at night, that's an interesting one. In Hebrew, the literal translation is, even in the night, our mind cannot lie down. Our body needs rest. We lie down, but our mind can't lie down often because of work. I've seen a lot of nods on that one. Is it all hevel? Is it all hevel? In this life, we toil, we strive, we stress. Jim Collins describes what he calls a level five leader. So the, he, and he says, these are the leaders at the top of the game, the top of their game. And he says, these leaders, they, they're, they're optimists because they see the glass is half full, but they're also realists. And so they know that half full glass can flip over at any time and everything can spill out, you know? Hevel, hevel, everything's hevel. In this life, you can be a master farmer and famine or flood can wipe you out. You could be a brilliant general and not have the resources you need to win the battle. 
Hevel, hevel, everything's hevel. And even if you finish at the top, everything you've accomplished, everything you built, everything you've assembled can be undone. Solomon, who many believe was that teacher in Ecclesiastes, Solomon experienced this firsthand. His fears came true, if you read the rest of the Bible. His son, Rehoboam, inherited the throne. And instead of listening to the older, wiser, seasoned leaders, Rehoboam listened to a bunch of his buddies. The kingdom ended up being divided. The divided kingdoms both ended up being destroyed. Everything that Solomon had worked so hard on became undone. So, is the teacher contradicting what we started with earlier in Genesis? Is he just showing that, nope, work, it's all hevel. It's all hevel. The answer is no. Ecclesiastes confirms. It confirms Genesis. If we read Ecclesiastes as a standalone book, we can miss very, very important details, including this one that much of what the teacher is testing in Ecclesiastes, he's testing things that are at cross-purposes with God. Cross-purposes with God is revealed elsewhere in Scripture. For example, here's something we pointed out last week. If we were reading Ecclesiastes in Hebrew, we'd see the phrase, for myself, repeated nine times. Let's take the passage we looked earlier. Let's, let's highlight the thing. You can see this for yourself. Myself, 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 myself. Who is he working for? His self. Myself, myself, myself. By the end of his reign, Solomon resembled Pharaoh far more than he resembled Moses or Joshua or his father David. Solomon was tracking a different direction. There's a place to write this in your notes. For myself, efforts are what? Hevel. You want to guarantee that it's all going to turn to dust? Do everything for yourself. Do everything for yourself. The word says the Lord opposes the proud. <laughs> the word says we find our life as we lay our lives down for higher purpose. So if you're not doing that, if it's for myself, 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 you're not just battling time and chance now. Who are you battling? God. A loving, gracious God who wants to wake you up from a dream that's not going to end well where you can accomplish everything that you think you want and have it all there and recognize this isn't what I ultimately wanted. This is dust. It's hevel. That's just one of several ways we can get off track with work. Here's another one. Take a look at this quote. The devil has a device called busyness with which he tries to convince Christians they're doing the will of God. Take a look at when this quote was written sometimes between the years 1260 and 1328. Do you think life is busier now than it was then? Do you see busyness, busyness? We often can confuse sometimes Christians. We think, well, I'm busy. I'm doing the Lord's work. Are we? Are we? Or are we just busy? We're just busy. The teacher uses the term under the sun in Ecclesiastes, and he uses that a lot of times too, about 30 times. 30 times, he's like, I'm toiling under the sun. I'm toiling under the sun. I'm toiling under the sun. I typed that phrase into a Bible search engine, and guess where I could find it in the rest of the Bible? Nowhere. 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 Work was never meant to be reduced 
to a pointless existence where we're just really busy. And we live these meaningless lives doing meaningless tasks as the sun circles endlessly around the earth. And the teacher knows this. The teacher knows there's more. How do I know that? Because he says there's more. Look at this. Ecclesiastes 3.14. I perceived, as he's testing these things and finding it all hevel, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing, anything taken away from it. God does good work. God does good work. And he invites us to join him in it. If we saw anything in our journey through Genesis in the summer, we saw God's promise in action. His promise, he says, follow me and I will be with you. Follow me, he says, and I'll be with you in this. And if we want to see the ultimate example of what this looks like lived out, we look to Jesus. As I was prepping my, my message, I was thinking about how significant Jesus was to this whole thing about Hevel. And I was thinking about those devices, those seismometers, the ones that measure whether an earthquake's going to happen. So imagine if we could come up with a device that, that was able to detect when prophecies were being fulfilled. And if we took that and we got close to the birth of Jesus, what would that thing be doing? All of this we've been talking about, it's coming to pass. And then you go through Jesus' life and he'd be going off every once in a while. And then right around his crucifixion, his death. And one of the things we see in those prophecies being fulfilled then is he brought to pass all these things that God said were going to happen. It's not Hevel. It's not Hevel. Time and chance could not affect God and what he wanted to do. The birth and life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ declared once for all that time and chance don't get the final word. God's good work couldn't be stopped and can't be overcome. Can I get an amen to that? His good work, it can't be stopped. It can't be overcome. Time and chance don't have a chance against it. So hear this good news. Ephesians 2.10. We are his what? His workmanship. We're his workmanship. You're his workmanship. And you're created in Christ to do what? To do good works. Okay, God's purposes prevail. You're his workmanship. What does he want to do through you? Good works. You want to align with that? How cool would that be? We could align with something that God wants to do in our lives. And that is good works works, which it gets even better. God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this is happening on all kinds of levels. One of the levels is, is that whole I, I calling that some people, we, we were born and we have a sense that we develop over time of, I'm supposed to do this career, but this goes beyond that too. Those good works, they, they're like any moment, any time kind of things. You can do good works any moment, any time. You can, and we're going to get into that here in just a second. Just a second. But first, write this down. You were created to. You were created to dot, dot, dot. You were created to do these good works. And they're going to take different forms at different times. You're his workmanship. You were created to. Life does have meaning. It does have purpose. You were created in the image of the living God. And he has prepared good works for you to do. The same man who penned those words also penned these. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not 
in vain. In the Lord, your neighbor, your, your, your labor is not hevel. There's a place this to write in your notes too. Your labor in Christ is not in vain. It's not in vain. It's not hevel. Your good works are seen by your creator. Your good works will be rewarded in ways that time and chance can't take away. And if you look at Jesus, we start to see these glimpses into a life where Jesus wasn't doing all the the stuff that the world says is going to bring you all these great rewards and great successes. And yet he is the one that divided history's timeline in two without building armies, without building buildings, without doing all these things that normally we think you must do to achieve greatness. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let's follow his example, knowing that the good work that we do in his name, it's not in vain. All right, so let's, let's make this practical. Let's make this practical. How do we close the gap between work as most people experience it and the kind we're created for, the kind that God has prepared for us, the kind that's not in vain? Let's start here. Number one, seize the divine moment right in front of you. Seize the divine moment right in front of you. I get this right out of Ecclesiastes. It's a natural progression of where he went earlier. In week one of the series, the teachers tried to come up with a way of, okay, if time and chance can affect everything, how do we minimize the heveling effect? The only way we can do it is seize the moment in front of us because we don't know what's going to come down the road, right? So he said, if you want to enjoy life, your best shot at enjoying life is not to hope in the future. Your best job uh, to enjoy life is just enjoy whatever comes your way at that moment because all you can control in this world is your attitude towards what's coming. So enjoy those simple things. Enjoy a good meal. I mean, here, here's an example of, of, of uh, do we have that one? Yeah, he says this um, in Ecclesiastes. In fact, he, he follows, if we were to pick up right where we left off, it says this, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil and his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who could eat or have enjoyment. So scattered throughout Ecclesiastes, like clues leading to a treasure, are reminders to seize the moments that, your life, present, that life presents. Savor your food, soak in those times with family and friends, because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Make the most of the moment before you. What if we apply that to good work? You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. What good work could you do in that moment right before you? And to accomplish that, often we have to go for the work beneath the work, Right? the work beneath the work, and find what it was. Jesus was a master at this, a master at this. He was a master at being in the moment of seeing the work beneath the work, how you can turn a task which could feel meaningless into an opportunity to honor God or serve others. How can you bring joy? Think about that. That's one of those beneath the work questions. How could you bring joy into the situation? How could you extend grace or dignity? How could you bring beauty or order or life? How can you do something to bring a smile or express appreciation or solve a problem or leave something better than you found it? You know, if ever there was someone that had a case to claim everything was Hevel, it was a man named Paul. He's the one who the Holy Spirit inspired to write Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, those two uh, references we looked at earlier, as well as more books of the Bible than anyone else. Everywhere that Paul went, everywhere that Paul went, he, he, th- he faced hardships and headwinds. And yet we see Paul seizing moments, right? 
He's able to seize moments in prisons, in shipwrecks, in synagogues, during riots and storms. He was able to find those ways to serve and honor God or care for people in those moments. And God blessed those works. No one in history outside of Jesus himself was more successful in the long run at spreading the good news than Paul. So wherever you are, there is a way to serve others or honor God or both in any given moment. So that's number one. Number two is this. If you want to engage the work in, in work that is not in vain, seize the divine moment in front of you and partner with authentic believers around you. Don't just go solo in this. We were created for community. And yet as a society, we're undermining our deepest longings by looking at life through the same for myself lens that drove the teacher to despair. I came across this quote as I was preparing this week. So we're moving towards an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person. That's good. But here's the problem. Our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is what? It's, it's vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. And I see this trend happening all the time when it comes to good intention believers. They're like, I want to go out and do good. Great. You want to become even more effective at doing good? Partner with those around you. In fact, if it's all you all the time, is that the life that God said he's going to bless? Is that the work that he said to do? Or does he call us into community? Think back to the story we opened with, that story about the kid, people who came around him. Here's a quote from his mom. And look at his mom, not knowing that I'd be talking about this, gave me some great, great material. She says this. She says, this is the mom of the kid, orange shirt kid. She says, I'm overwhelmed by the love I feel from what? This extended community. Every comment, item sent, action taken on behalf of my son will never be forgotten and hopefully will serve as inspiration for him throughout his life. Together, those who helped Orange Shirt Kid, they did more than any one of them could have done on their own, right? I mean, think about it. Think how they came together as teachers, administrators, marketing experts, designers, decision makers, fulfillment teams. They all came together and did something amazing that none of them could have done alone. You know, one of the things I did when I was prepping this week is I, I did a, a search on, the, on a Bible search engine. And I said, what happens when I type in labor and vain together? And how many verses, you know, come up? And, and I looked through that. And one of the interesting things I noted is that when Paul questioned whether his work was in vain, if do this on your own, look how many times he was questioning whether it was in vain because people weren't doing things together. And when the church wasn't working together, that's where he began to question, is this all in vain? Is this all in vain? All right, let's go back to our list. How do we not labor in vain? Seize the divine moment in front of you. Partner with authentic believers around you. And number three, inspire and equip disciples that will come after you. One of the things that really seemed to bother the teacher had to do with recognition. One of the reasons that the teacher thought that work was hevel was that thousands of years in the future, no one was going to remember what had been done. 
he might have been all over this mom's quote. I can picture the teacher just deconstructing what mom said. All right, let's go back to mom's quote and look at the words she uses. She says this will never be forgotten, and she also uses the word hopefully. The teacher would probably jump all over the words never forgottenly, never forgotten, precisely because of words like hopefully. Time and chance are the enemy of hope, right? How do we know it'll never be forgotten? Right? Because of time and chance. So he laments. Here's the teacher in his own words. He says in chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because of what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. This wise teacher is looking through a really narrow lens. Really narrow lens. He's looking at the dot of his life. And he's wondering if the dot of his life is going to be recognized way down there, way down, down in history, way down the road. He's looking through a very narrow lens to a tiny dot on a timeline that can be traced backwards to a garden and then forwards to a new heaven and a new earth. Well, what if you zoom out? And instead of looking at the dot, what if you look at the timeline and look beyond one life to multiple lifetimes? What if we look at life like a relay race? It's not just likely, it is highly likely that Orange Shirt Kid is never going to forget this. How many of you say Orange Shirt Kid, never going to forget what happened? I think that's highly likely. So think about this. That community came around Orange Shirt Kid and gave him an experience he'll never forget. What if this community invests in the next community and teaches them and inspires them and equips them to do the same? Now you have a new generation of Orange Shirt Kids who are getting touched. Now, what if you take that community and train and equip and inspire them through our example, our teaching, right? Do you see how now you have a string of never forgetting by the people who it affects? Jesus commissioned his disciples to do what? To make disciples. If you want to be about the work of God, if you want to be doing things that God said he would bless, this is one of them to help pass on this idea of good work, good work, good work to the next generation. Yes, life is a vapor. And precisely because we don't know how much time we have, job number one should be to inspire and equip those who will carry the torch after we're gone. This too is the work that God promised to be with us in, which makes you just, you know, Drives you nuts. Because what if instead of lamenting about how his successor might be a knucklehead and his work might be forgotten, what if that teacher had spent that same time and investment raising up the next generation of leaders? If you want to invest your limited hours under the sun in something that God has promised to be with us in, invest in those who come after us. And as you do, as you do all these things, remember there's a God who sees There's a God who sees. When you go to your car and you see the trash in the parking lot and you pick it up to make the world a little bit more beautiful, who who cares if those around you see you, right? God sees on bigger scale as you take the time to bring joy to that, 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 that server 
at the restaurant this afternoon who's coming and doing the best that he can or the best that she can, and they're struggling, and you bring a smile and you say thank you, and you affirm their dignity, you're doing good work. God sees that. It'll be rewarded. You know, for us to live a life like this, God sees it, he rewards it. It does not go on unnoticed. And, and, and even if our works, you know, I was thinking about this too, our works on our best days, what we can do is we can make like the t-shirt with the hand-drawn drawing, right? What can God do with his works? He can make the sunset over the ocean. But God sees us with even more love and care and compassion than that teacher saw that kid. That's how God sees you. And that work is seen. That work is rewarded. The good news, the gospel, is that there's a God who not only created all this, all this, but a God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to save it. The gospel, when we get this, when we get this, the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves or secure our identity through work because we already serve a God who's proven, who's proven that we were worth it. That it's proven his love for us. Tim Keller says it better than I can. Let's close with this. Since we already have in Christ what other people work for, salvation, self-worth, a good conscience, and peace. Now, we may work simply to love God and our neighbors. As the worship band comes forward to seal this time with a song, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that in your wisdom and in your work, you passed along this collection of documents that includes Ecclesiastes. Thank you for these, these letters that were inspired by you that help us to just cut through the plastic Christianity that is so easy to create and that asks these tough questions and, and gets us to test our own lives and our own pursuits. Lord, thank you that we don't have to learn through our own mistakes, but we can look at this guy, you know, who took things farther than we ever could and found out that it was all dust. Lord, and thank you for not leaving us with that, but then giving us this hope. This hope that as we say almost every week lately, it's anchored in history. This hope of your son stepping into our world, saying that he was going to die, saying that he was going to rise again, and then doing it. It's a demonstration of how much you love us and how your good work can't be overcome. Father, today, help us to reflect on our own approach to work. Help us to be about doing good work with a renewed passion, a renewed sense of insight, and a renewed confidence that it's not in vain. This we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.